We're going warp speed on Packet Pushers Heavy Networking 400G Ethernet. And if you're thinking, ah, 400G, it's just the same thing as 100G, but faster. Well, you're sort of right, but also kind of wrong. Joining us to explain the why, what, and when of 400G is Ray Nering and Lane Wigley of Cisco Systems, our sponsor for today's episode. I am Ethan Banks, and joining me is Drew Conray-Murray to ask questions on your behalf and hopefully get our collective heads under the hood of the fastest Ethernet ever. Lane and Ray, welcome to Heavy Networking. And uh, and Ray, let's start off with you. I want to jump right into this thing. Now, 400G, to me, that sounds like an incredible amount of bandwidth for those of us that are kind of just getting used to 100G. So what sort of customers are looking for 400G in 2019? Well, it is a lot of bandwidth. And to be honest, I mean, uh, many of our customers, both in the um, in the data center side and the service uh, service provider side, are looking for 400G solutions. In the past, generally, what what has happened is that uh, you've seen sort of the high end uh, or the the highest speed standard at the time, kind of go into the transport side, and you would have a router or something that was going to connect to that transport system. Usually, those solutions didn't really depend or require a lot of uh, density, or uh, you know, it was essentially connect the router to the net to the transport network, and you know, and go from there. Today, what's happening is what we're seeing is that um, bandwidth in data centers and, and connecting data centers together and also from service providers themselves are uh, all requiring this increase in bandwidth kind of at the same time. So uh, what's happened is it's really put a lot of pressure on developing these new standards, using the latest technologies, you know, trying to get the, these highest density systems put together with the highest bandwidth. So when you look at uh, 400 gig, what you're starting to see introduced into the market today are systems that have 32 ports of 400 gig on them. So, you know, 12 plus uh, terabits of bandwidth in a single RU. And what are they going to use 400 gig for? Is this essentially router to router interconnects or is there something else here? Well, uh, part of it is router to router, but it's also in the spine of the uh, of the data center and also connecting to the leaves. So, um, you know, what's happened inside the data center is you have sort of these uh, flatter networks uh, that are being put together and um, they just require more bandwidth, uh, a little bit higher up in 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 the architecture of that uh, network itself. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, those uh, spine and leaf uh, switches and, and routers that are being uh, that are connecting to the um, to the transport network uh, require the bandwidth. So um, it sounds like you're saying this is not 400 gig is not just for the hyperscalers, for the service providers, you, you anticipate this in data centers as well, enterprise data centers? Well, well certainly, uh, well, um, enterprise, not just yet, but uh, I'm sure you'll see 400 gig uh, connections in, in enterprise over the next year or two. Jeez, over the next year or two. So, I mean, do you think uptake is going to be pretty fast then? Because, I mean, again, I'm still in awe of 400 gig as a speed. <laughs> so, I mean, you really well, think the uptake is going to be quick? if you go back and you look at, look at what's happened at, uh, at 100 gig. So, for example, you know, 100 gig kind of started off maybe 10 years ago. And again, you know, it sort of uh, uh, started at the transport side to the to the router. And then over the last few years, you start to see different form factors come along and the densities get higher and higher. And then as soon as the uh, it entered into this switching center, uh, the the number of ports just took off at 100 gigs. So I would say that happened in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And I think if you go back and you look at some of the um, publications that are out there, I think last year there were maybe uh, 10 million uh, 100 gig ports. And this year, maybe there's going to be close to 20 million 100 gig ports uh, deployed in the network. So the opportunity there for uh, 
driving a better efficiency in inside those networks by going up to the next step in speed is a real opportunity here. Yeah, and I think one important uh, point to make with regard to your question about enterprise is if you look at where things went historically, going back 10 years, you had the the SPP routers, service providers doing things like packet over Sonnet and, and WAN interfaces, even connecting the routers to each other. And then you had you know 10 giggy and 40 giggy happening on the, the enterprise side. And eventually the, the SP you know, did some 10 gig, but never really embraced 40 giggy. So you had these parallel paths in which the investment from optics was, you know, was split um, with 100 giggy that started coming together with 400 Giggy, uh, everybody's kind of going in the same direction. In addition, we have these web scale data centers and even web scale um, networks running, you know, WANs that create volume that's never been there before. So, one of the big things that supports the ability to go aggressively with 400 Giggy is that everybody's in the same, is doing the same thing. How does manufacturing and availability of 400 Giggy equipment come into this? Because I think there's some unsolved problems in that space. Might it Take a while before you can actually just order this thing and the quantities are going to be there? Well, what I would say is you're going to see a number of platforms. Uh, I mean, people have already announced the platforms that they're going to introduce in this calendar year. And uh, I would expect you to see those uh, those products being deployed um, you know, this year, by the end of this year. Okay, and, and Both on the switching side and the routing side. Uh, end of 2019 then. where so, so manufacturers ramping up is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about standards, Ray. Uh, I was prepping for this show and noticed that there are an enormous number of standards. I mean, lots and lots. So why so many, first of all? Well, you know, what's happened is is that the IEEE actually started working on uh, the 400 gig uh, Ethernet standards uh, four or five years ago. And by the end of 2018, they had published uh, sort of their first uh, go-around on those. What the IEEE tries to do is uh, they try to come up with standards that they feel are uh, easily deployed, can be addressed by a number of different technologies. And, you know, they kind of start off, you know, sort of early in the process where maybe the technology is still evolving. And so what's happened now is that the IEEE's kind of published their results. And in the meantime, people have come up with other ideas to say, hey, you know, this might be a little bit better way to address this market, or uh, I might be able to get better efficiency or lower power consumption or lower cost or, or whatever those other things are. And so you see a whole bunch of MSAs come up. And so you've had MSAs. Um, there's one about uh, 100 gig Lambda, for example, that uh, focuses on, um, you know, trying to drive as few or uh, trying to drive the optical um, transport to be, you know, at 100 gig uh, per, per wavelength, to reduce the number of wavelengths. Trying to drive more efficiency in the optics to, uh, to make the modules less expensive and dissipate less power. Now, you mentioned MSA. I think most people listening to the show would be very aware of the IEEE, but what is an MSA? So MSA is essentially a group of companies that get together that say, "Hey, you know, we want to have a, we want to work on a standard amongst a, a concerned group of, of companies." So you see that, like for uh, for hard drives and computers, and that where they're, you know, they're two and a half inch hard drives, and they or or memory, and they fit into the same standard. And there's an MSA, there's an industry group that's a, that goes around that. So kind of a consortium again. It's it's not. Right. It's not the exactly. like the ITF or the IEEE. It's not like a standards development organization in the, in the way we maybe think of it. It's just we all want to get together because we see a business case to have a standard around this. So we should all work together to make this thing. 
Exactly. So they, you know, and again, it may not be quite as detailed as the IEEE. And the IEEE may even take some of those MSAs and then roll them into some of their own standards, you know, and work through all the details of all the corner cases and all that. Yeah, one thing I would add to that is that the roles of MSAs have have been expanding. If you go back to, let's say, something like 100 gig E, the, the multi-source agreement uh, kind of defined the, the module itself. If you look at the back end electrically, that was IEEE. If you look at the front end optically, like LR4, that was IEEE. If you looked at how you would put those together with the CFP2 or QSFP28, that's where the MSA would define things that are you know not directly connected to the standard. Now, when you get into 400 gigi, you have some extensions to that. Um, what might be coming out the front, as Ray mentioned, with you know different wavelengths or more wavelengths or things like that. That's when you start to get more MSAs. And to some extent, that's because the IEEE uh, is very consensus driven and, and it takes a long time. Once we have newer component technologies able to go more aggressively, you may find that some of the MSAs try to uh, define standards more quickly in areas that traditionally would have been only done by the IEEE. And then often we'll see that once those are, are, are defined by the MSA, as Ray mentioned, they start feeding back into the IEEE. And a good example of that would be the, the FR4, which is a two kilometer uh, over a single fiber with four wavelengths. The IEEE did an FR8, which is one fiber, but eight wavelengths. And so the, you know, the, the MSA is a bit more aggressive, and then eventually that'll probably get back into IEEE. So Lane, you had mentioned earlier that um, <clears throat> one of the reasons we're seeing 400 gig advance so quickly is that sort of the entire industry was behind it and everybody's sort of goals align that way. But does having MSAs in the, the, the pipeline now sort of risk bifurcation or problems in that we're going to have a lot of competing standards or non-standard technologies out there? I think if you look at, as I mentioned, sort of the back end or the front end, that everyone is, is sort of on board on that. I think if, again, you look at sort of the, the metal box in the middle, then that's one place that there's been a lot of debate. And uh, I can let Ray go into some more detail on the on the history there. Yeah, I think when you start looking at form factors, I mean, prior to the most recent form factors, the OSFP and, and QSFP DD, there had been other 400 gig form factors like CFP8 and also the CDFP. But those were kind of large and they didn't really fit uh, you know, what people wanted to do, especially in the switching and the routing side. So um, you know, today you have uh, two basic standards that people talk about. I would say that the QCPDD seems to be the most, uh, most common one. I think uh, anyone offering a, uh, a 400 gig product is offering a QCPDD product. But there are, uh, I would say, a subset of those, those same vendors are also offering uh, OSFP modules as well. Yeah, can you talk about the differences between QSFPDD and, and OSFP? Because in the releases I've seen coming out from folks like Cisco, they often specify which uh, optical form factor they're supporting. Yeah, so um, you know, one of the reasons that Cisco was really focused on the QSFPDD is because within a single RU, you can you can put up to thirty six ports, and it's Essentially, the same size as uh, as the standard uh, QSP 100 gigs uh, QSP modules that are out there today. The other thing that's that's really key with the QSP DD is that it's backward compatible to all the other QSP uh, form factors. So, if you really need a 100 gig interface, you can take a, 
a 100 gig QSOP module and plug it into the same port and it'll operate fine. You can also get down to 40 gig if you really need to. And as customers migrate their networks, what you're, what you're going to find is they're still going to be dealing with some of the other pieces of equipment uh, in their network uh, that they uh, haven't gotten to yet to upgrade. So this will give them the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, OSFP is a little bit larger. The interesting thing behind the uh, OSFP was uh, when they first introduced it was it that it had an integrated heatsink, which is an interesting concept. But I think now what they're also offering is, uh, is a slightly different form factor that they use as a riding heatsink as well. Because what we're seeing is, is that people want to be able to use different technologies into these client ports. And so you want to be able to use, you know, sort of the short distance or copper cables, you know, where you need to. But they also want to be able to use the same port for, uh, for WDM and, and coherent transmission as well. And what you're going to see is uh, you're going to see a lot of those uh, products uh, be used and, and they dissipate more power because they have a lot more built into the, into the module itself. Okay, so if I can read that back to you, then what I'm taking away is QSFPDD, I get backwards compatibility with other QSFP ports, uh, so that may ease my transition. Uh, OSFP, the, the benefit there is that that built-in heatsink, or what, why would I choose OSFP over QSFP? Uh, well, I think what, what, to be honest, what I think has happened is that um, the OSFP was kind of developed uh, between some vendors and, um, you know, the module vendors and system vendors like Arista and probably some end users. When we worked on the QSFPDD, it was a pretty open MSA. So we had a lot of inputs from a lot of different vendors mm-hmm. and uh, concerned parties, including end users as well. So we wanted it to be something that, you know, we got inputs from as broad a market segment as possible. Um, we looked at all the various features that would be important. We also looked at, you know, what would it take to uh, to dissipate more and more power. And I think if you go back and you look at uh, some of the demonstrations that were done at OFC this past year, um, you saw that you know the QSPDD could easily dissipate 20 watts, which is sort of what we expect to see coherent modules dissipate. Okay, so my takeaway is that a vendor may have had a couple of big customers who, for some reason, wanted OSFP, and so that's the road they went down. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to add a, a little bit to that. And, and you mentioned the, for example, thermal capabilities of an integrated heatsink. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's neither better nor worse. It's just different. Uh, uh, integrated heatsink, you have a different uh, efficiency of transferring from the module to the heatsink. If you have a, a riding heatsink, which is just sort of clasped down uh, to the heatsink, so it's a separate module, you can do some different things. You can make it larger. You can make it smaller. You can change the direction of the the fins so that it can go with the airflow in a different direction. You can add a new metal that might be available in the future. So it's a it's just different ways to solve the same problem, and and they both work. Uh, as Ray mentioned, we have the ability to cool everything that's planned, and so within that, you know, both solve that challenge. And then we're getting that benefit of, of backward compatibility, and the backward compatibility is not solely valuable to the end customers, it's also valuable to the whole ecosystem that has assembly lines and test gear and all sorts of things that are already scaled up for QSFP. Right, right. Yeah, and I think one other thing to mention is that when you look at the number of QSFP modules that are out in, in, that have been deployed at this point, that, um, you know, I think by the the end of 2018, there had been over uh, 30 million modules deployed in, you know, in various networks. And probably by the end of this calendar year, there'll probably be closer to 60 million 
modules uh, deployed in a network. And that's a lot of capital that our customers have spent on modules. <laughs> and as they migrate their networks, uh, they're probably going to want to reuse those uh, modules without having to spend money on a on like some kind of port adapter or something else to be able to reuse. So let's say I'm uh, listening to this 400G conversation, but I'm a data center operator as opposed to like, say, an SP, um, so more enterprise-minded we mentioned that there is a lot of different standards that are out there from IEEE, various MSAs. Which are the 400G standards that are going to be most interesting to me in that data center context? So what, what I think is going to happen is you're going to see products like QSFP uh, DD using a DR4 uh, optical interface. And what that DR4 optical interface is, is essentially four parallel lanes of 100 gig. And Customers are going to want to be able to break out from that port or aggregate traffic at 100 gig because 100 gig is obviously very popular at this point. And you know, being able to make that transition between a 400 gig and a 100 gig port someplace else in the network is, is going to be really important. So my expectation is, is that that particular standard is going to be extremely common, especially in the initial stages of 400 gig deployment. And that was DR4, you said? Yes, DR4. And if I do uh, deploy DR4, is that likely to impact my cable plant? Would I need new fiber optic installation? Or, Well, the way I would look at it is, um, you know, one of the 100 gig standards that's pretty common today is uh, PSM4. And uh, that's essentially four pairs of fibers, again, aggregating to a single, uh, to a single uh, port in a switcher router. And so an awful lot of those have been used. So the cable plant for customers that are using those kinds of solutions already exists in some of those data centers. So, And then for the uh, people that are just using duplex fiber, you would use potentially uh, FR4, which is uh, you know, a duplex uh, single-mode fiber connection. And then going forward, what we see is that there are probably going to be customers that want to use multi-mode fiber. And then there's, uh, there's a couple different standards that uh, people are working on today. There's uh, what we call 400 gig BiDi, which is essentially a multi-mode version of DR4. Um, you know, the reach is a little bit less because you're using multi-mode fiber. But again, if you're using multi-mode fiber and you want to be able to reuse it for your 400 gig network, um, that essentially gives you the ability to connect um, 100 gig per lane into into a 400 gig port. I'd still be able to push a 100 gig signal across, um, r- right across MMF. But as you said, just the reach would be shorter. But but I could still do that. Exactly. Yeah, there there are no cases when you're going to to need new fiber. Um, and there's a whole again a whole range. If we start out with copper cables, we're looking at at one to three meters. If we look at active optical cables, we're looking at 100 meters. If you're using this this DR4, uh, the D is is Roman for for 500. So that's the parallel single mode 500 meters, and then. The FR4 is two kilometers, and then there's an LR8, IEEE, and then there'll be an LR4 that are, are 10 kilometers. And so we've got that full range covered you know, very quickly. And then when we go beyond that, we start getting into the ZR and ZR plus coherent optics, which Ray will talk more about. Okay, so when we're looking at packaging all this stuff together, we, we mentioned the optical modules, but there's also ASICs, there's CERDES. What are the biggest challenges for manufacturers in bringing all those components together into a box? As we as we kind of go through each generation, we have to push harder and harder on the technology. And, and to some extent, this requires us to lift the curtain a bit about how things work, because we do get a lot of questions about uh, how we put things together. 
the networking systems have lots of analog components like the lasers or serializer deserializers or how you send links electrically within the system whether that's mm-hmm. asic to asic or asic to optics historically on the sp side we started with something that was 12 times larger and it took us 6 or 7 years to get into this qsfp so by jumping straight to a third generation form factor we're loading a whole bunch of of mechanical engineering problems into these devices just to summarize that the problem statement there you've got this issue of a very small amount of space in which we're trying to push a lot more bits through and now that we're doing that, we're creating, as you're saying, mechanical engineering problems, problems with with, with heat and, and dispersing power and so on. Exactly. And, and electrical engineering problems as well. On the back end, we're going to, for both types of modules, have eight 50 gig electrical signals. Those are going over the, the 30s. Those um, have changed from 100 gig from a different encoding. So we've gone from NRZ or non-return to zero, which is basically Morse code over the line, to something called pulse amplitude modulation with four or PAM4, in which we send four bits on every signal. So if you look at the the eye diagram showing what the the lasers look like or the oscilloscope looks like, you have four different different levels. There's added complexity to to decode that. Uh, And so that drives uh, power for that complexity. Again, that's in great part an analog component. So um, one, the speed of that is not going up as fast as we'd like. Uh, an example or a concrete example of some of these challenges is that we've quadrupled what we're doing from an Ethernet standpoint, but we've only doubled what we're doing on the back end. And that's why we have to put eight electrical connectors rather than four in there. In addition, yes, it's a significant thermal challenge. If we look at the 100 gig QSFPs, those are on average running about 3.5 watts for a, a 10 kilometer. Here we're looking at 15 or 12 to 15 watts for 40 kilometers, and then we're getting up into the 20 watt range. So we're talking about 20 watts in a very small form factor, and that's where we get uh, big challenges um, as we integrate these into a system. And if you look at what that drives into the the routers or the switches that are that are are hosting them, you know we have to have innovation in heat sinks. We have to have innovation in those cages to make them dissipate here dissipate heat better. Mm-hmm. We need to have innovations in fans. We need to have innovations in doing a better job of laying things out inside the system. Uh, and then if you go into the larger systems, like you know with different with line cards, all of those have changed direction over the last five or six years, uh, especially on the SP side, whereas they used to have you know, backplanes and everything connecting into the backplane, they're all changing to what's called an orthogonal direct model in which the line cards and the switch fabric directly connect to each other. That gives us better signal integrity or electrical paths inside the router. The upside of that is we now have cold air going directly to to all the optics, which are unfortunately very thermally sensitive. The downside to that is we have optics, then forwarding ASICs, then switch fabric ASICs. So we have an airflow that keeps getting hotter as we go through. Uh, so we had we touched on this uh, a little bit earlier uh, on availability of 400 gig hardware, and I know Cisco and Arista, among others, have announced. But what are we thinking for actual availability? When will products be shipping? So my expectation is that you'll start to see products uh, shipping uh, in in the next couple of months. So, you know, I think uh, a number of vendors have announced their products probably the last fall. 
there's there certainly field trials, early field trials that are going on right now with uh, various uh, key customers. And then, you know, as we wind down the uh, the calendar year, you'll start to see uh, real deployments start to happen. So this is July 2019. We're recording this. So you're saying probably September, October 2019, we should be seeing uh, hardware uh, shipping? Yeah, absolutely. What about optics? Is they on that same timeline? Yeah, the optics would be you know on the same timeline. I mean, one of the th- one of the advantages that that Cisco has at least is that you know we have a number of different uh, platforms, both routing and and switching platforms, and you know we have to test all of these optics uh, across all those platforms, especially as we go forward with things that might be coming out next year. And so, you know, that gives us a, a, a very good idea of what's required in these optics. So it's not just uh, qualifying our, our modules to just work on one platform or, or one platform to work in, you know, with, with some other plugins of one type or another. We actually have to um, test these things across a whole series of different uh, products that are meant for different applications. <laughs> and so, you know, that actually gives Cisco's uh, modules and, and, and switches a pretty robust design. And in in the overall scheme of things, we actually help all of the vendors, uh, whether they're uh, ASIC vendors or uh, or module vendors or cable vendors or whoever they are, actually uh, help develop the industry uh, to make ro- more robust products that are able to work over a broader range of uh, conditions. In and amongst all of those modules that you're testing, we, we've been talking a lot about, it, we've kind of implied fiber optics, but they're actually... Uh, copper assemblies? Are there copper assemblies that might be available at 400G? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, copper is pretty inexpensive. And if you don't have to go very far, less than three meters, um, you know, you can use a copper cable. So, yep, yeah, we have copper cables that'll do that. There are some breakout cables that we're looking at uh, that'll break out from 400 gig to 50 gig for some applications. Um, and we're looking at uh, some extended uh, active copper cables as well to go beyond the the three meter uh, passive copper. And again, you said three meters is the practical limit that we're dealing with at uh, at 400 G for copper. Yeah, for passive copper cables, the the current limitation is is about three meters at this point. Will there be actives as well? Yeah, so we do. We are uh, talking to vendors about uh, active copper cables, and you know they'll probably extend out to maybe uh, seven meters or so. Kind of the same that we've been seeing for for a long time at uh, at other speeds. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of distance, it sounds like there is also some work going on to get 400 gig at, at longer ranges. Can you talk about the the challenges and and the timeline on that? Yeah. So um, one of the big challenges for uh, to go you know, longer distances and certainly for a lot of these coherent modules is, um, you know, the DSP technology that, uh, that they're going to leverage to fit that inside a pluggable, uh, module of one type or another. And so, um, most of the vendors that are working on this are, uh, are working in seven nanometer technology. And, uh, you know, that's a relatively new, uh, uh, new CMOS node. Um, and, um, most of those vendors are, are taping out their their uh, DSPs this year, so in the first half of this year. And so those modules will start becoming uh, available probably towards uh, the end of this year, beginning of next year, at least as prototypes. And so, you know, we'll work with those vendors and uh, start to bring those products uh, out in the 2020 timeframe. And what kind of distances can we anticipate? 
So it depends on the speed you're going to operate at. Um, I think uh, one of the big opportunities right now is uh, DCI, uh, sort of the data center interconnect uh, uh-huh. a- applications, and that's you know roughly 80, 100 kilometer type uh, type of reaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also what you're going to see is that beyond that, there's ZR plus modules, hundreds of kilometers at uh, at at 400 gig, and at lower speeds, uh, thousands of kilometers. They actually have a lot of flexibility depending on the application and the kind of network that you want to go over. Those products are extremely flexible in um, the kinds of uh, applications that they can address. In the future here, do we do we end up getting an integrated approach where I'm not? It's not a pluggable module I'm putting in to get my 400 gig. I've got just some line card that presents me with optics that are all integrated because maybe we need to go that way to handle all of the heat and power problems and so on. Well, you know, there are um, a number of um, a number of people talking about that kind of thing, and certainly Cisco and, and others are looking at that technology as well. I think that um, at some point, especially as the speeds get to higher speeds, 800 gig or beyond, you're going to start to see these uh, integrated uh, approaches. There's an MSA called Kobo, sort of a... Um, uh, a form factor that fits inside the box and fits into sort of a standard um, standard uh, socket um, that um, these uh, sort of optical engines would plug into, and then you would have all your interfaces just be optical cables on the on the, uh, the front of a box or a line card. You know, there's still a lot of things to work through with that, and and you know, the key thing is to drive the cost and and speed and power dissipation. So, you know, one thing to think about is that today you've got all these modules sitting on the front of a box and you've got some ASIC in the middle of that box that's dissipating, you know, power as well. And so if you start pushing all these things in, into that box, you also have to think about now you're concentrating all that power dissipation in, in a smaller and smaller area. So the thermals become, you know, something that we have to consider as well in the overall design. So, you know, I think there's still some work that has to get done. You, there may be some uh, products that you start to see in the market over the next year or two that, that are able to take advantage of that technology. But I think you're still going to see pluggable optics probably into the next uh, generation of products as well. Yeah, I mean, if we move to that integrated approach, it, it may solve certain problems, but then like, there's a big commoditized optics market out there where people are going to third parties to buy a you know a very decent qualified optic to put in. They, a lot of that's uh, cost savings driven and so on. That that would impact that market, would it not? Well, yeah, it can. So I think uh, you know part of the part of the effort that the, the Kobo um, MSA was trying to address is, hey, you know, let's come up with a standard footprint that you know can be addressed by a number of different vendors. It does become a challenge, you know, as a, if you're end user and you want to use third party optics and you want to be able to drive the uh, the market for lowest cost and you know have a number of competitors competing for your business. Um, you know, that might be a little bit of an impediment to that. So we've spent a lot of time talking about 400 gig, and you hinted at 800 gig. Uh, and can we get beyond 800 and even terabit Ethernet? Well, I think that's something that uh, that's inevitable at some point in time. Doesn't seem to be any uh, any reduction, or uh, the traffic is still growing. And you know, it was mm-hmm. funny. I was just reading an article this morning on on the speed of uh, 5G, for example, and then uh, um, they were mentioning how fast. Uh, you know, they could get downloads and that kind of thing. And you're at the very edge of the network at that point. So cer- certainly there's going to be a drive for higher speeds going forward. So uh, there's no question in my mind about that. I think over the next three to five years, you're gonna, you'll start to see, you know, whether it's 800 gig or terabit or whatever it is, the next generation of speeds start to start to come out. 
Is that a silicon photonics application? Is that what it's going to take to get us there? Are those products actually finally coming to market? I think silicon photonics is certainly one of the tools that people are going to use uh, in their marketplace. And I think the efficiency and the density that silicon photonics offers is going to be an important tool along uh, along the lines to, to be, a, be able to reach those goals. But also the, the silicon that sits behind the optics themselves is also uh, going to be um, part of the development that's, that's required there. And I think also the architecture, you know, are there architectural changes that are going to be happening in the future, you know, maybe to make these networks even more efficient than they are today? Yeah, one thing I would, would add to that is that silicon photonics is not just a future technology. We've been shipping products with silicon photonics in modules for, I think, five or six you know, years now, and Ray's been uh, a, a big part of that. So um, silicon photonics doesn't mean necessarily putting it onto the same you know package as the ASIC. It just means modulating the signal in silicon. And our, our CPAC had that. And I know another other people are using silicon photonics in 100 gig generations as well. Are there limitations within the Ethernet protocol itself that are going to cause problems? Or is it more about the electrical and mechanical design challenges? Well, I don't know that there's going to be an issue on Ethernet protocol to prevent them from going to 800 gig per se. But I think one of the things that uh, that we have to think about is, you know, to define a Mac and and those kinds of things takes a bit of time. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it could be that what we see in the next generation are things that are multiples of 400 gig. And that would also, you know, again, make them backward compatible to some of the systems that are going to be deployed over the next several years. So. I think it's uh, it it depends what happens with uh, the requirements for for traffic and and some of the technologies that are going to be rolled out over the next few years, you know, and what are they capable of? Remains to be seen, you know, exactly how uh, the next generation of, of products come out. But I don't think there's any question in my mind that uh, you're going to see higher speeds come out over the next you know three to five years. Okay, so 400G here it comes. We are we are ready for it. This was a great discussion. Uh, Lane and Ray, much appreciated your deep knowledge on this topic. And this is one of those things that, um, Drew, I don't know how you felt, but as as we were going through this, I'm going, oh man, there's so much more to know on this topic. We're just scratching the surface here. It's so deep. The fans in the back of my head are, are whirring quite high. Quite high, <laughs> quite high indeed. Okay. Now, Lane, um, is there anywhere that you would recommend people go when they want to, if they want to dig in more deeply, they want to find out more about 400G and, uh, and optics and these sort of topics? Sure. Um, some of the, the high-level places to start, we have uh, blog posts that are actively uh, or frequently posted from Bill Gardner, who is the GM of our optical business unit, as well as Mark Noel, who's a Cisco fellow, uh, who's been very active in, in IEEE for over a decade and also chairs the 100-gig wavelength MSA as well as the QSFP MSA. Um, we'll also include a link to some to a bit more detail about um, some of the benefits of the QSFPDD form factor that we've been leading the industry toward. Wonderful. Thanks very much. And that does bring us to the end of another deep dive discussion on heavy networking. My thanks to Ray Nearing and Lane Wigley for sharing their expertise. And our thanks to Cisco for sponsoring the show, because that means we can keep bringing you educational chats like this that are hopefully entertaining as well. And I'm at EC Banks and Drew is at Drew underscore CM on Twitter. The show notes and everything else you might want to know about the Packet Pushers Network of Podcasts for IT professionals is all at Packet Pushers. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.